Hi, welcome to another episode of Dialogues with me, Richard Reeves. I uh, really enjoyed this one. This is uh, a conversation with Fiona Hill. Uh, Fiona is a colleague of mine at the Brookings Institution, where she's a senior fellow in the Center on the United States uh, and Europe. Uh, she'll be known to many of you for her testimony in the first impeachment trial of Donald Trump. She gave testimony in November 2019, and that was following her stint uh, in the White House as deputy assistant to the president and the senior director for European and Russian affairs on the National Security Council. She's served two presidents uh, before that and is a, a deep expert on uh, Russia and and especially and on, on Europe. And we talk about her new book, There Is Nothing For You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century. And in that book, what she does, and in our conversation, we, we draw together what would standardly be thought of as geopolitical issues, international relations, strengthening democracy and so on with political economy issues, and in particular, the rise in inequality and the difficult transition from industrial and heavy industry areas to post-industrial ones. So her own upbringing, uh, we start there actually with a discussion of the British education system. We're both Americans who've risen up the social class ladder. So we, we talk a, a bit about that, but then how she, in going to the, that was in the Soviet Union, saw real comparisons between the landscape in some of the cities in the in uh, the Soviet Union and then and in Russia were similar to her own upbringing in Bishop Auckland as they moved away from coal mining and, and heavy industry, and in more recent years has observed similar trends within the U.S. And so these these different lenses that she brings to bear really connects together uh, the the difficulties that are being created by the transitions in our economies and how that has led to the fissures that are exploited by some politicians to create the populist tide we're living with now. I found some of the most interesting stuff, the, the differences between different kinds of authoritarian, in particular the very big differences between somebody like Trump, who is anti-state, and Putin, who owns the state, uh, and so on. And so I find that very interesting. We end with a discussion of what, what needs to be done in terms of muscular political action, policy action to, to meet these challenges, and by extension to head off some of the challenges that we've seen uh, from the, the populist brand of politician of, of recent years. So it's a real tour de force, I think, on her part to connect all these dots together. I hugely enjoyed the conversation, as you, you'll be able to tell, and hope you do too. Fiona Hill, thank you for joining me on Dialogues. Oh, thanks, Richard. I've been really, really looking forward to this. And I think I was thinking about the title of the, the podcast could be Two Brits Fix America, right? <laughs> <laughs> because it's like, there's nothing Americans like better, as you know, than people who sound like us telling them what they're doing wrong. But oh, Exactly. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> no, thanks, mate. Yeah, exactly. But, but they are doing it wrong. And um, But you're, an, you're a US citizen now as well, right? I, I am, I yeah. That. I mean, I have been since 2002, so it's been yeah. a long while, actually. Yeah, yeah coming so up on 20 years, you know, next year. So you've been a US citizen for most of your adult life. Uh, exactly. Yeah, and I came here in 1989, so, you know, it's been even longer. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I actually, I became a US citizen in... 20, in 2016, just in time to vote in the presidential election, like literally uh -huh. the last day in Maryland, my home state, where you could become a citizen and still register to vote. Uh, and I was in the last ceremony of the day. So I was in the last batch of people. And we all, it was great, actually, because we're all from around the world. We all went and signed up to vote. So voting that. So I managed to, you probably did the same thing, because you've probably voted in the Brexit referendum and presidential i did actually i missed out on the brexit referendum because i'd been away for so long uh, they, they instituted oh, yeah. which is 
probably just as well, actually. I mean, well, you've got to start asking yourself about how long could you really vote when you're not resident in a place. They instituted a sort of a cap after about 15 years, somewhere along the line. And as I've been out of the country since 1989, you know, I haven't exactly been resident uh, in, uh, in, a, in the UK for quite some time. So you missed you missed the chance. I, mi- I missed. Uh, yeah, I could have. You you've done done this remarkable thing of voting in two really consequential. Both. Yeah, exactly. right. Exactly. And obviously they both turned out great. So like one of my, I have a friend who's French, and he texted me and saying, "Well, for God's sake, don't take French citizenship because this <laughs> rate." You could do next. Thanks. Thanks a lot. So I want to go. Uh, I've, thank, congratulations on your, your book, which obviously builds on uh, your testimony and your time in the White House, but, but really is, I think, an interweaving of your own story of mobility, geographical and social, and the intersection of class and gender in particular, uh, and then your study of post-industrialization in, in the three countries you know well now, UK, the US, and, and the USSR. So I really want, I want to get to that. But let's go back for those of you, for those handful of people that didn't see your testimony um, in the Trump impeachment trial, which we'll get to or haven't read the book yet. Let's situate you a little bit back in the northeast of England, where I, I would know that's where you're from because of the way you sound. And we'll get into accents in a minute and how I, why I sound the way I do. I grew up in Peterborough, but that's a long story. Um, and situate yourself there in Bishop, you know, what was it, Bishop Auckland? And in particular, there's this moment at 11 the when you, you had this opportunity that you weren't able to take to go to a different school and i think that sort of situates you and the educational system really well so say you know whatever you think is useful to that background but situate yourself in the first 11 you know maybe the first 12 years of your life up to that kind of crucial moment yeah i mean so i think an awful lot of my story is one about timing it's pretty much everybody's is right but Actually, you know, I'm, I'm I'm born in 1965 in the UK, and it's one of those periods where the sort of socio-economic environment was very much in flux, and also the educational system. So you mentioned age 11. You know, when I'm uh, born in 65, the UK is embarking on a well, it's it's more of an experiment at the time, but then it becomes the shift in policy as these things are. You know, there's obviously a, a, often a lot of attempts to see, you know, how you can kind of change economic and other uh, social and educational systems. And I'm born just at the time when the United Kingdom is experimenting with this thing called comprehensive school education. So uh, previously, up until then, there's been an, either an academic or a vocational track in the education mm-hmm. system. And you come along a little bit later, so it might be interesting to talk to you about what your experience of, uh, of this the was ele- as well. The 11 plus exam. Yeah, yeah so there is the, there's this exam, the 11 plus at age 11, uh, that everybody in the country has the chance to take, no matter what their socioeconomic background is. And before I come along, the 11 plus um, sort of selects out kids, including from a working class uh, background, who can then go on to grammar schools. I mean, obviously, there's always this opportunity for people to go to private schools from, you know, what's in, in the United States would be the upper middle class or the, the, the very upper class in uh, the um, in the UK, the uh, professional classes, to, to pay for their education. But there is this grammar school system that takes from all of the schools around the country, sort of elementary schools, a handful of boys and girls to go off to separate boys and girls grammar schools. And it's usually only two to three kids out of their particular grade year. And so my parents, for example, uh, both being born in the 1930s, they take the 11 plus. Well, actually, my dad doesn't even get to take it because he grows up in this mining village in uh, the northeast of England and he's sick. Uh, and his mother's sick on the day that they have the 11 plus and nobody gives him a redo 
Because the expectation is he's a kid of a coal miner. He's just going to go down the coal mine. So what's the point of it having him do the it doesn't, exam? It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because, yeah. you know, he's yeah. even, you know, if he passed it, you know, the likelihood of him going to grammar school from the kind of place that he was is very slim. His dad wants him to go down the mines, you know, whatever. Let's not give this kid the chance again. My mum takes the 11 plus, but she's number four in the girls in her school. Very close to number three, but she's number four. And only three girls get the all expenses paid ticket to the grammar school because the grammar schools are all paid for every part of the education including you know there's bursaries and things for the uniforms and all the equipment and things like this so my mum doesn't get to go to grammar school even though she's obviously pretty bright so she goes on to the other tier of schools the secondary modern schools and she leaves there at 16 goes to train as a nurse and actually she's very happy with her career and her lot in life Although if she'd gone to grammar school, who knows, maybe she'd have been a doctor or something like this. Mm. So she's already out of the running for you know some other uh, kinds of professions. And some of her um, and my father's cousins um, and other relatives who get through to the grammar school system, go on to be teachers. Some of them actually become lecturers in, a, you know, kind of in colleges and universities and, um, you know, a couple, you know, um, go on to really, you know, much higher things. So you can see that this grammar school does create a different pathway. But it's, it's kind of like you're taking out the cream of the crop and everybody yeah. else goes off to more vocational kind of training at, at, at age 11, which is a pretty and arbitrary kind of time early. frame. I mean, yeah, in I the, mean, the US has a history of tracking and so on, which, we, you know, which yeah. has a mixed history. But, but tracking at 11, and you make the point it's that pretty once, rigid. Once, once you're on one of those tracks, it's pretty difficult to, to, switch, to switch back and actually yeah, you know, to get back my, again. My own experience, my, my father passed it, his brother didn't. And their relationship you know was never the same and and i've seen many you know that's true for other families where like within a family you see one one going down a different track to the other because of what happens to them at the age of 11 and it's not that it's not relevant and we'll maybe i'd like you to talk about how well you did on the 11 plus and what that meant for you it's not that it obviously carries information but it but it then overweights what happens to you for the next well Forever. rest of your life actually yeah i mean it's uh, i sort of joke to people you know if they've read harry potter it's like harry potter's sorting hat <laughs> you know, yes. kind of when he gets but the slytherin you know the, the the house that everybody doesn't want to be in is is pretty different it's like a whole life of you know um of, of difference and as you said when you talked about your father and his brother families were split up over this one kid would go to grammar school and the other wouldn't and they'd actually often never see their family again because they'd be put off onto this totally different professional track maybe academic track they'd most likely move away from their local communities it often contributed to the brain drain and that becomes my story later on as well for you know communities that could have done with a bit more of investment of intellectual capital or people coming in you know with qualifications to help think about you know how to turn the place around so this comprehensive school system was intended to get rid of these divisions between a sort of an academic or vocational track. People recognising that 11 plus was actually holding, you know, the, the country as well as uh, individuals back because people are late bloomers and it was kind of putting people on these arbitrary paths and something ought to be done about it. So the comprehensive system is meant to keep everybody within the same school system, but you'd have academic tracks, you know, like in American schools and more vocational yeah. and training, but you'd have everybody from the same communities and neighbourhoods actually all studying together. And there were boys and girls too. So this was kind of co-ed schools, much more like the American public school system. So they start to phase out the 11 plus exam as I'm moving along in my um, elementary and uh, education. And I'm actually the last uh, in my cohort uh, of kids in Bishop Auckland from the elementary schools to take the 11 plus. It phases out in different times in different places. 
So I take the 11 plus exam and I ace it. I mean, I'm top of my class, you know, not just, you know, my mom being in fourth place. And I'm actually, you know, really highly ranked around the whole, you know, region. And so I get this offer from a private school because the grammar schools have phased out in my town. But private schools would look to offer scholarships to bright kids, you know, boys and girls who ace the 11 plus in that final year. And uh, the school offers, you know, to waive all the fees and a scholarship, but it doesn't cover everything. It doesn't cover the uniforms. It doesn't cover, you know, extracurricular activities. It doesn't cover the bus fare because it's, you know, about 10 miles away from my house. So I'd have to take a bus there because my parents don't have a car. And it doesn't cover, you know, equipment and books. And my parents can't afford it. And even if there were bursaries and grants and, you know, as my dad said, you could be a charity case. <laughs> he was a bit embarrassed about that idea. I still might not be able to make it uh, because my parents literally had no money, no disposable income whatsoever. So I don't go. And, you know, so you I've often to, thought about that. You know, so I just you go, go to, to the comprehensive school. The comprehensive yeah. school, which is actually next door to my house. Yes. <laughs> and this particular comprehensive <laughs> school, I mean, it's great, actually. I, I literally roll out of bed in the morning and, you know, five minutes to go. The dream of every kid in school. You know, I, I never have to get up and, you know, trudge too far to get there. I can literally look out the back window of my bathroom and see the school and if people are going in. Um, but that, you know, is a very, obviously, incredibly different experience. And this particular comprehensive school is relatively new. Um, because it's an amalgamation of what was a, a vocational training school for kids who were probably going off into you know, car mechanics and all kinds of other things, and a secondary modern. And although the secondary modern had some academic tracks, it wasn't expecting to prepare people for university. And in theory, all comprehensive schools are also supposed to be have uh, what's called a sixth form that you and I are very familiar with, yep. to prepare people to take their advanced level, A-level exams at the time, to then perhaps go to you know, a, a university of some description or that was even a bifurcated system, you know, back in the 70s and 80s as well. And my school's just never had any experience of that. So they're sort of starting from scratch. Very different for the other schools in town, one of which had been the grammar school for the boys, which has turned into a comprehensive school. And for years, you know, in the sort of school performance tables, just so much better than, you know, the other schools in town. Yeah, so it's interesting. So, I mean, there's a we we could probably just talk about the experience of the UK education system for the whole the whole podcast, which would be of interest to my handful of most of my <laughs> right, exactly. in the US. Is like really, what's all this what about? Is, like, <laughs> what's these A level things you keep talking about? But, but I, you know, so there's some there are some parallels, and then I, and then I really want to push on how things may or may not have been different had you taken that path. Because so my my mother also a nurse, um, she comes from North Wales. And it was, you know, if you wanted to leave, it was nurse or teacher. So she went to Birmingham to train to be a nurse where she met my dad. My dad passed the 11 plus in Birmingham. He was raised by, mostly by a single mom through his adolescence in, in Birmingham. First to go to university. He goes to university, ends up in manufacturing. And the one thing he said to us was, don't go into manufacturing because he lost his, he, he was in management. So he, right. he went to university, then got on, he went to Ford on the management oh, right. training, oh, wow. trainee yeah. track in Dagenham. Yeah. So he was Dagenham, Dagenham, yeah, which is the period. biggest Ford plant actually yeah. at one point, so you know, something outside so of the US. It was enormous for his, for his background. Yeah. Um, and 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 met my mom in his late teens. They married as soon as he finished uh, university, and that gave them you know, a different place to the one you had. But then, in, so I grew up in Peterborough, which is a new town, and my mum was the nurse at the former grammar school, which was the cathedral school in Peterborough, huh. right? And because she was the nurse, even though we weren't in catchment for that school we could we had the op 
option to go to that school or the comprehensive school, which, like you, we live next door to. In fact, our yeah. back fence backed onto the school ground. So we you were even could, closer than me. Yes. <laughs> we, we just climbed the fence and ran <laughs> to the yeah. school. Huge, former secondary modern, huge school, new so headmaster. Think, yeah. Very similar. I mean, I don't think it was quite the same. But it's good, early in the experiment and so on too, and uh, and all of the challenges that that you know, you have, and I I then did go to Oxford, which you nearly did, and we had similar experiences there. But the thing that I wonder about when you read a story like yours, or, or like J.D. Vance or Tara Westover or people like that, is you just in some ways you can read it as a story of a lack of opportunity. Or you can read it as a story of an incredible amount of opportunity for the people who have the right stuff to succeed right. within this opportunity structure, right? So I don't know where you were on the 11 plus distribution, but right here you've got coal miner and nurse's daughter in a right, poor part of the UK who aces the 11 plus, right? So it's clearly something about you. And then you didn't go to the private school. And again, I have similar family experiences there. You went to the comprehensive school. So that's an opportunity not taken, but you go from the comprehensive school to St. Andrews and then Harvard and so, and then the white house. And so you have to wonder was, weren't you just going to succeed anyway? I mean, would you have done that much better Fiona, if you'd gone to the private school, really, how much better would your life really have been? Or was it just like the Fiona-ness of you that was probably (laughs) going to, and I would say the same about myself, like, like right, with J.D. Right. Vance. Or it was like at some point you have to wonder how much difference would it really have made to you? Because that was a huge fork in the road for you at 11. At 11. I mean, you, that was a real, I I mean, prob- much bigger than the difference I had. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Like, I probably wouldn't have left the UK. Because I think, right. you know, what would have happened in the private school, there would have been a lot of pressure, first of all, to, you know, transform myself into a middle class yes. Brit. So I have never been a middle class Brit. No. I mean, you'd sound more like me. You'd sound more like me. I'd sound more like you if I had, yes. right? Yes. My only experience in the United Kingdom, all the way through until I leave, is as of a working class Brit, and I still think of myself as working class, which I think for a lot of people is probably preposterous at this point. But that's you know who I am because I've not had any other experience in a UK context of anything other than blue collar working class. So middle class in the British sense rather than middle yes. class in the, uh, in the American yes. sense. Well, which is upper middle because class. Because I, I would have yeah. been, once I'd gone into that private school, um, and I saw that with friends who did go, because there were some other girls in the class who went, because they did well on the um, 11 plus as well. And they went to the private school. I really never saw them again. And when I did, their accents were all different. They sounded, as we would say, posh, but they had received pronunciation of Oxford English, Oxbridge English, the Queen's English, BBC English, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, they already were in a whole different world of these kind of rarefied team, team sports, debating societies, all kinds of things that were just, uh, you know, the Cosmos team sports at the... Um, at the comprehensive, but they weren't the same. You know, we didn't have a tennis team. <laughs> we didn't have the kind yeah. of a high-end, you know, um, uh, uh, field hockey team and you know, something down lacrosse, you know, the kinds of things that you sort of see in, you know, private schools and things in the US and, and uh, you know, also in the, in the UK. And so it was a different, um, you know, track. I think one of the people I'd been really close to at elementary school and I lost track with her, she went off into industry. She, she, you know, I think she went off to YCI or something. I, I've totally lost track of them all because th- th- immediately there was this rupture. They went off into a different world. And I do think I would have been propelled up much more quickly into a different kind of milieu in the United Kingdom. I probably, as I said, I would have been pushed to lose my um, accent 
um, you know, kind of conform in many respects mm-hmm. to different people's expectations. Whereas in the comprehensive school, I'm still there with everybody else. And the opportunity track is different. You had to kind of go out there and see things. Because I saw that when I got into elite universities, that the track opens up for you. I mean, often some people are wondering what you're doing there on the track alongside them. And, you know, what, what are you doing? How did you get here? You know, you're not supposed to be in this, you know, same track. If I'd come from a private school, when I got to university, people would have been, oh, yeah, okay, you went to Durham High Girls School. Of course, you know, kind of. But you go to Bishop Barrington Comprehensive School, and there's sort of this incredulity. What? How? You know, kind of. This is not the pathway that people expect you to be on. And that in itself, that reaction to who I was and, you know, kind of how I sounded and where I was from and the school I went to really, I think, propelled me to take a whole different course. Because it did get my back up when people were rude and, you know, nasty about it. And I thought, well, I did as just as well as you did on the 11 plus. In fact, maybe I did better because apparently I was nationally ranked according to my, you know, yeah. elementary uh, school teacher. So, you know, I had every right to have this education under the current prevailing educational system in the UK. And yet I felt I didn't. You know, I had this whole, not just imposter syndrome, but this kind of feeling and perception that I didn't belong. And that's in within your own country. You know, and yeah. so that kind of made me sort of feel like I need to get out of here, which I hadn't felt like before. And I didn't mean get out of Bishop Auckland or St. Andrews, you know, kind of like great education. I had a fabulous time on the whole there. But I relate in the book some in these episodes that made me think, wow, I'm being told by the larger society that I don't belong. So that there's nothing for you here actually came from my, what my dad said to me in Bishop Auckland about there's no opportunity here. You know, a bit like, you know, your experience with the parents, you know, you, you know, you said your dad worked in um, Dagenham, but then he lost his job. I mean, everybody lost their job in Bishop Auckland. Even being a teacher and a nurse, yes, you, you might be able to get a good job, but the demand wasn't there because people are leaving because all the jobs have gone. And yeah, I'm also feeling that the larger society is saying there's nothing for you here either because you don't belong. You're not the right sort. Yes, it's interesting. I mean, and then you had that experience uh in harvard as well and actually you have a real go at the oxford ppe people and you you have a particular go at ed balls which i hugely enjoyed because uh ed balls <laughs> yeah, you probably worked know, with him, you? politician yeah. <laughs> right i mean it's like ed balls uh, we've crossed paths a few, few times as well but but there is this, this this moment where you you do you hope you're escaping from the class the class system when you to some extent to the u.s and that's true of course because in the u.s so the accent that i've got now was partly sort of hammered into us growing up. My my mother in particular, as a native Welsh speaker, who then moved to yeah. England, was absolutely determined that we would speak. Right. So everyone in, you know, most of my friends dropped all their teas, uh, et cetera. And so just, she threatened us with elocution lessons. We used yeah, to joke well, that they were going to be yeah. electrocution <laughs> lessons. <laughs> I'll never forget her face when I came home and, and used the word computer for the first time, but I said computer. And she looked at me, so okay. And then a term at Oxford, because I did wriggle through the, the experience that you, you described so well, again, through luck and happenstance. But, but then one term at Oxford, and I came home, and, it was not, and I wasn't speaking the same way as my classmates anyway, but the term at Oxford, go down, go down the pub, and my friends are like, why, why are you talking like that? So you do get, so that's, that sort of middle classification, or you know, in the UK context, kind of happens to you at some point. So it would have happened to you at 11, but instead it happened to you at St. Andrews and then a little bit at Harvard. So you you pick up these cues of how to speak, how to dress, how to behave. You know, at some point you sort of get acculturated 
into it. But for you, you had to almost escape the UK to sort of feel like like how you sounded in particular wasn't going to be this kind of barrier to you. Is that is that it's, it's no, fair. that's so absolutely you, you, true. Otherwise, yeah. you might have been you, you could have been a Labour MP maybe or a Conservative MP. I shouldn't assume. Maybe yeah yeah you know yeah yeah you never know what, what kind of track uh, you'd be on. But I mean, you've described you know the same thing there that the there is this sort of very strong societal pressure to be something and someone else. And, you know, what I initially liked about the United States was, you know, my naivety about what the United States was like. You could be anybody you wanted to be in the United States. All of these, you know, social boxes that people put you in in the UK were irrelevant, you know, when you started somewhere new. I mean, look, I had relatives who went off to Australia, you know, early on just for the same reasons. They wanted a better life, but they also just didn't want to have people constantly questioning who they were and what right they had to be, you know, doing certain things. Because, you know, I talk in the book and you, you've had that same thing and we Brits still do it to each other, you know, to some extent, you know, where you're from. <laughs> yeah. And then they'd ask you, what did your dad do? And, you know, what school did you go to? And that was just so ridiculous. I mean, nobody ever asked me what my mom did. My mom was a nurse, a midwife, and you know. I know, actually, your mum was more, more of a breadwinner than your 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 dad. It, it yeah, she was. Like, yeah, like I different mean, parts. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we really we only managed to buy a house because of my mum's salary, and then she had to stop working. You know, the classic case of you know women and childcare, and you know you can't keep working, and then we plunged into poverty. You know, if my mom had been able to continue working we wouldn't have been so impoverished as we were. We were like, you know, way below the poverty line because my dad's salary after the mines, I mean, he made reasonably good money in the mines and, you know, said it was a sort of prestigious job, you know, in uh, you know, in many respects, people knew what a miner did. I mean, he really felt he'd lost everything when the mines closed down, status in society, you know, his identity, all of his connections, family connections, his own village, you know, kind of became a, just a dreadful place to live. But he ended up on the bottom rung of the economic ladder in the US, uh, in the UK rather. I mean, similar to many people in the, the US as well. That hospital porters, cleaners, cooks in the hospital, grave diggers, you know, council workers on the lower kind of level, manual workers, they were the lowest paid and, uh, in, in the UK in the 70s, you know, and into the 1980s. And then, and then you talk about the sort of squeezing on the public sector. But I want to talk about your dad for a bit before we move on to some of the bigger issues, because he, he is an interesting character to me because he faced the challenge that a lot of men face in the sort of po- these post-industrial areas that you talk about, uh, which is the loss of a particular kind of job, which is very strongly identified probably with you know, sort of traditional masculinity in some ways, probably reasonably well paid, particularly conditional on the level of education that you, you had. And the only way, and then they go, and yeah, it can't be replaced it. like by like. There is no way that with that level of education, you're going to get a job that's paying the same as you would have in industry, etc. And a lot of men struggle with that yep. idea of trying to... Your dad became... And I, you know, my dad's had these kind of moments of... Uh, not, not so dramatic, but moments of having to kind of be downwardly mobile, if you like, as well. And it seems to me that's really interesting that some men are able to make that transition, painful though it is for the sake of their family or whatever, and to sort of, to some extent, swallow their pride. I don't know if I'm saying that too strongly. Yeah. And I no, just no, wonder I if that's, is, that. Is, is that fair? And how did, how did that affect the way you thought about your parents and your dad and, and role models? Well, my dad decided to kind of, in a way, I mean, he was a person with a really great sense of humour. And he was just one of these really resilient people. He'd had all kinds of things happen to him. He'd, he'd been born, uh, you know, a time when his parents were homeless. 
I mean, they really, they had nowhere to live. And they ended up living in a condemned building. And his older brother ha- had to go and live with relatives, grandparents, aunts, you know, kind of anybody who could just feed and clothe him. Mm. My dad was clearly not a planned baby. And he had all these just really dreadful memories, but some some good memories as well um, about growing up like that. He was seven before his dad was in full-time work. And so his whole childhood was in this building that, you know, kind of row houses that were later pulled down almost immediately afterwards. Uh, and it was, he, he was very well aware of, you know, kind of why it was. Um, the time, you know, my granddad had been a, bit, been a union agitator for, you know, improved working conditions. This was on the like, 1920s and 1930s. And so he'd been blacklisted. You know, so my dad was well aware of, you know, why granddad didn't really have a job. Uh, and also because the mines were still privately owned and not so profitable. And it's really World War Two that becomes this kind of big break for the family as it's a massive national, international tragedy. World War Two gets my granddad back in a job because they needed to make sure every miner was on the job, every skilled miner. Uh, to uh, basically dig coal for the war effort. And, you know, you know, I mean, particularly, mm-hmm. you know, coming from um, Wales, you know, how much of an influence even the, the whole group of Anir and Bevan brings, you know, kind of uh, uh, men from middle class uh, British backgrounds to kind of come and go down the coal mines to Hugh Coal. It's the frontline workers. And my dad, uh, you know, then remembers that the war breaks out, granddad gets into work again because they need workers irrespective of what they might have done in the past. And then they get a house uh, and they get a, 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 it's a row house and, you know, the, the village not too far away from the condemned building, but it's a house. And I mean, they get to live in there and, you know, they stay in that house, they, you know, the whole time. And my, my dad's whole view is all shaped by, we have to have our own house, not mm. just be dependent on rental things that we may not be able to have. But, you know, he, he realized that house involves, you know, building something for the future. And he wants to make sure that we're never homeless and that we always have, you know, something. So he starts to focus on having a house and he'll do whatever it takes to make sure that we have a house. So, you know, using my mum's uh, savings, they put this down payment on a house. So dad's determined that no matter what, he's going to have a job so that he can pay off the mortgage for this house. And the house becomes kind of the focal point for my dad. I mean, there's a, it's a real metaphor and, you know, kind of a, yeah. a, a really meaningful thing here. You know, he's always talking about the Englishman as his castle. As his castle, he names the house, which is totally ridiculous. Hill House. Oh, it had a it's name. Very small, I know, and it's on a hill, and it's his house, and he sort of fills it, you know, with kind of the sort of memorabilia, you know, of his life, and he just loves being in his house, and he listens to records, and you know, he he, you know, kind of uh, he he's always reading because he felt that he'd missed out on this education. He sort of fills the house with books, you know, that he buys at jumble sales, at, you know, thrift stores and, you know, kind of estate sales. And he just reads everything that he possibly can. And this house becomes the kind of, for him, this sort of symbol. And it's kind of his, you know, retreat from everything. And he likes nothing more than just to come home and stick on a record or stick on the television and, you know, watch matinees or watch the news and inform himself of what's going on around the world. And he just has this very positive attitude because once he has the house and he's paying off the house, no matter how hard things is, he's already made some progress. So although he's been downwardly mobile in in terms of his job, he's achieved something. That he's failed right. all of his other family he'd members. He'd upwardly mobile he, in another way. Uh, he'd exactly. actually moved to home ownership, which, as you point out, is a That's crucial right. part. That's right. becomes of, a really important issue. Of wealth, wealth creation. Well, I thought that was super interesting and, in a way, quite inspiring. You know, I do think how, how your parents behave in moments of difficulty, economic or personal and so on, 
does leave a real mark. You know, those of us who are lucky enough to have quite positive experiences of how our parents handle hardship of one kind or another. Um, it definitely, it definitely helps. So, I wanna, so I want to pan out, pan out all the way now from your dad to global geopolitics and post industrialization. I mean, because <laughs> you, there's a brief version of the brief version of your story, which you, you tell very well in the book at, at length, is working class background in, in northeast. Go to university, spend time in Moscow, Russian and history. Go to Harvard fortunate enough to be paid all the way through which is important right that you don't yeah have very to, any, important and no I mean, debt either no, no debt. debt i mean that's no debt that's again a sort of marker of like like once you could breach the walls of opportunity like good things lay on the other side i refer to this guy's work a lot but this guy joseph fishkin has written this book bottlenecks which is like this is once if you get through that small space right there's this kind of space if you can get through there then good stuff can happen on the other side. It's not guaranteed, but it's like, it's almost like you, there's a, a whole world. And once you'd broken through, in your case, just Andrews, and then survived all of some of the bullshit you had to deal with from the Cheltenham Ladies College people and stuff, which you know, I think comes with, comes with upward mobility one way right. or the other. Then the world kind of did open up to you a little bit. And you saw these parallels between what you saw happening elsewhere. And then, then we have your trajectory up through public policy, Harvard, public policy, National Intelligence Council, Brookings, etc. But I want to focus on the way you do political economy, because you, you really came to see political economy as a hugely important part of the whole story. Like it's not of how you think about global relations, how you think about international relations and so on, and particularly these post-industrialized areas. So talk a bit about how you came to believe that the economic trajectory of certain regions, and I think you do good comparisons, became so important politically, and so for, and actually therefore important geopolitically exactly, as well. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of it is, you know, personal empiricism, right? <laughs> it's kind of you know what I observe and I make note of, particularly from my vantage point. And you would have had very similar vantage points to me. I mean, you know, you and I have actually come from not that dissimilar backgrounds. So well, we I, don't looking... wanna, I, I should say, yeah, I mean, Peterborough but, is a but, new town. Yeah, it was growing. I, I, I don't want to overstate the comparison. experience of, you know, having, you know, your mother as a native Welsh speaker, which very much discriminated against. My godparents were native Welsh speakers, also right. from um, Anglesey and Snowdonia, the slate oh, right. mining areas. Oh, and, you know, I know, you know, how... my mum's from, Blaine of yeah, and I mean, they, they, whole... they would get hit if they spoke They would get hit, yeah. They would get literally beaten at school and that really made an impression on me. I thought, well, what's going on here? You know, I mean, this is their native language. It's, it's an older language in English in the British Isles, along with, you know, Scots, Gaelic and Irish. And they're getting beaten, you know, for speaking their language at home. What does it matter? You know, so you, 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 even as a kid, I was asking myself these questions. I didn't understand why that was the case. You know, these are lovely people who, you know, my godparents and, you know, we live next door to them. And, you know, the, the, this, all of these um, early observations as a kid, you know, I think a lot of child psychology and, you know, research work shows that, you know, kids do observe things very clearly. You get to see senses of justice and injustice early on. And so I'm in these this environment and I, I see this injustice on that level. And then as I sort of move on and I get to have this self-awareness about who I am, because people are always putting me in this box as I kind of move out of, you know, my, my family and through the education system, I start to be more attuned to it elsewhere along the line. And so... You know, when I moved to Russia in the first instance, that's why it's kind of this shock of realization that Russia is just a giant, big blue collar country. 
because you know so, since the Russian Revolution and the you know abolition of the aristocracy and the uh, imposition of the Communist Party, everybody's been forced to conform, but in a <laughs> very much a downwardly you know, mobile way. Everyone's you, working you remember, class. Yeah. Everyone's working class, at least yeah. in theory, and yeah, you know, in, in practice, theory. actually, that is very true. I mean, there are you know in uh, George Orwell's Animal Farm, some working class people are you know more working class than others, and mm-hmm. others are not. You know, making a riff from that. But you know, I um, uh, when I get to the um, Soviet Union, because it's the Soviet Union there in Moscow, I'm um, studying at an institute. Again, this is another of these opportunities that uh, was opened up to me studying Russian at St Andrews. I get a British Council scholarship, so um, I'm on a scholarship with all kinds of kids from all kinds of backgrounds. I mean, one of um, my, I mean, a lot of some of them are pretty aristocratic actually, and others are kind of you know some working class like me, Scots kids, you know, Scottish kids. It's you get a kind of little microcosm of um, British society. But the Russians are super interested in me because I'm the royalty of the working class because I've come from a mining family from a very famous coal mining area. And they have all they all know about it. And, you know, so suddenly I'm thinking, God, this is really interesting. So I get invited out in ways that my other, um, uh, you know, fellow students are not. People kind of invite me out to see how other workers are doing things. And I see the social mobility that's possible in the Soviet Union then from, you know, workers also getting ahead through education. Now, a lot of them are forced, of course, to join the Communist Party, but nobody seems to believe in it anyway. And uh, this is also the end of the Soviet Union. 1987, when I get there, is when the post-industrial decline is happening there too, or one might say industrial decline because they haven't moved past. The no, they're not yet. post yet. They're, they're, not, they're not post yet, but they're about Correct. to be. They yeah. just haven't seen it yet. But already <laughs> yeah. their industries are not competitive. Central planning is totally breaking down. Um, there's lots of demand, but no supply whatsoever. And it actually looks like the northeast of England where there's no demand because everyone's lost their jobs and has no money. And there's nothing in the shops as a result because um, nobody can afford anything. But in the Soviet Union, there's nothing in the shops because the supply isn't there. And I find this like super interesting because here are these parallels. The place looks like a giant northeast of England. There's still this amazing, you know, culture of this being, you know, the capital of the, the Soviet Union. There's the big military edifice, but you can see the whole thing crumbling in the same way. So I start to get really interested in this. And then this is where you see the political manifestation because Mikhail Gorbachev coming, you know, from out of the Communist Party and he is a protege of Yuri Andropov, who used to be the head of uh, the Soviet-era KGB. And Andropov knows that the system is in really big trouble and they need to do something. So Gorbachev, um, coming out of that um, understanding that the system's in trouble, starts messing about with it because they're trying to fix the economy. And they think initially they can fix the economy without having to do anything much on the politics and this is where you start to see the connections between the socio-economic problems and the political problems. So Gorbachev's policy of perestroika, which is well underway by the time I get there in 1987, is meant to open up the economy. And, you know, the hope is that people will be self-reliant, that they're opening up for some entrepreneurship. You've got, you're gradually chipping away at the central planning. And they think that they can give people a little bit more pluralism in the system without, you know, kind of massive political change. There's a little bit of a democratic experiment going on, but they don't realise how much it's interconnected uh, with the economic situation. And so that once they start pulling at the strings, the whole thing starts to unravel. It becomes very evident in the 1990s because people start to associate the pluralism, the opening up, the democratisation with state collapse on the one hand 
uh, and then with the lack um, of material benefit. So um, Gorbachev's trying to address all of the the, the horrors of kind of the Soviet era. Uh, it's uh, you know they're more talking about the Gulag. I mean that's what happened yeah. to Khrushchev, but they've kind of rolled it back. The black spots in. Soviet history from everything from the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact and how they got into World War Two massacres of Poles at Katyn, um, you know, just the massacres of, uh, you know, Jews during World War Two. Everybody's talking about everything because they kind of think that they'll just kind of address all of this, but, you know, they can keep the lid on it and they can't because, you know, every, once you open that up, everybody wants to talk about absolutely everything, including why the system doesn't work. And then in the 1990s, when the Soviet Union has literally fallen apart, and part of that is because of a political backlash to what what to what uh, Gorbachev was trying to do, and uh, you know a bunch of reactionary counter revolutionaries coming and trying to stop him, and then you know there's a whole lot anyway it's, uh, of issues that precipitate the collapse of the Soviet Union. It's going to be 30 years, you know, this um, December that uh, that it all fell apart in 1991. Wow, that makes us feel yeah, like I know. it really does. I know, I know exactly. <laughs> but I'm sort of seeing this all happening in real time. But in the 1990s, you, know, you have political parties, you have, you know, in theory, this whole democratic experiment really um, opening up. The Communist Party hasn't gone, but it's just one of many parties. The whole system is in flux. But the economy uh, fails to rebound as soon as sort of communism and central planning disappears. And there's this whole period in the 1990s that people are familiar with shock therapy. Yeah. A lot of shock, no therapy. The whole idea of flicking a switch on the system doesn't work because the whole of Russian... Um, economic history should have shown that you can't just turn this overnight. They'd never had private property. You know, they didn't really have rule of law in the way that, you know, we expect it, particularly in the economic uh, sphere. So you get the emergence of this oligarchical class, people just kind of taking the assets away through privatization. And at the end of the 90s, people are just exhausted. You know, they lost their uh, places of work, they're, nobody paid their wages, you know, pensions are massively in arrears. The most horrific time things that I saw in the 1990s was all people like my grandparents out on the streets in Moscow, you know, with no food, their pensions weren't being paid, begging. It was just a horrific experience. Yeah, you just, people, you know, kind of getting their apartments taken away from them because, you know, they privatise the apartments, but then, you know, unscrupulous people come in and literally murder people, old, old ladies, to get them out or kick them out. You know, they take their property. They don't know what to do with it. It's just the whole system, it was so complicated and complex and people really didn't know what they were doing when they started to mess about with it. And so democracy gets a bad name as a result. Yes, and because people, the, because that's people the associated that with, with that. With, the, with the economic collapse. That's, and so I see that because yeah. that's also how we felt in the northeast of England. We blamed Margaret Thatcher. And I've had a few people saying, you're really hard on Margaret Thatcher in the book. You she didn't really cause all Margaret the problems. And you I are am. hard on that. <laughs> because she's, she, she, <laughs> we, thought, you know, we thought she was you know, the architectress of our despair. You know, I, I can't tell you the number of protest songs I sing about get rid of Margaret Thatcher. And then later, later I realised it wasn't really her fault. <laughs> we felt it was because she was she was in her own way trying to grapple with this. So I was trying to kind of, um, you know, convey how we felt in the moment about her because you've, you felt that she didn't quite understand what had happened, like the Russian reformers later on with shock therapy. Yeah. She thought she could transform things and turn, you know, kind of working class miners into small business people and entrepreneurs and stakeholders in society, but didn't really kind of fully understand, you know, what that would take. What's interesting, so I think, it's, yes, you are hard on her. And I mean, actually, we remember when Thatcher was education secretary, she took free, free milk away. 
from schools and so yes, the, Thatcher, the, Thatcher, the milk snatcher we said exactly, at school and I really like that free school milk Thatcher, milk snatcher and so she had it all the way along and Thatcher 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 out 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 etc these were the sort of protests because what's interesting about it is it's similar and you do draw all these parallels although I want to now see how we can separate them a little bit because the sense something being done to you yes as opposed to something happening and right. so there was this sense of like this is not just like a difficult thing that we're all trying to get through together there was a sort of deliberateness to at least it felt that way and so it did and feel it that way yeah it felt like not the, this is not that just trying to get the uk away from its you know moribund uh industrial sector and move us you know this was that just to intentionally destroying the british working class and so and you're right of course he wasn't intending to do it but there was a the shock wasn't as great as you get from collapsing a central centrally planned economy right and hope but but it was quite shocky i mean thatcher was quite she's pretty i mean when you know you remember her own cabinet were turning against her you don't mention the falklands war but that probably helped save her politically in 82 and so but she was like the lady's not for turning Yes, exactly. Right? It was this sense of like, you know, unemployment going through the roof in 81, that brutal recession which affected so many people. Um, and I wonder if that, is that the thing that's shared? Is just that this is something that those people over there, whether it's London or the upper middle class or DC or the Moscow Politburo types, they're doing this to us. They're not listening to us. And it's more about the relationship between them I, I and think us. This- there's a lot of that and of course that's how populism emerges out of that because you get the them and us is you know very easy right. to uh, portray and but there's actually another area now this gets back to the political economy again where there are a lot of parallels um and and you are having things done to you because you know um the whole goal of this economic change and these reforms is to wrench you out of one system into another the north of england was dominated by state owned enterprises same as the soviet union because after World War Two, there was the nationalisation of the coal industry, shipbuilding, steel industry, because um, it was impossible for the private owners to revive them after the war, because Britain had been cut off from uh, the rest of international commerce. Um, of course, most of Europe had been too, let's face it. Right. But I mean, Britain had been under siege, you know, in many respects, and um, it, it ended up having to go into sort of strange forms of autarky. And, uh, you know, the private sector rebuilding. Look, we're in a similar sort of phase right now. We're all talking about industrial policy. Do we need this post-COVID, post-pandemic? You know, we, we have these periods where, you know, it's very hard for the private sector kind of to do everything. And a lot of um, private um, owners had been um, devastated by the war. Understandably, they'd lost everything. And so the state had to step back in to rebuild. So there's the creation of British coal, British steel, British shipbuilding, etc., British rail. Mm. And so we privatises it, which is the same thing as shock therapy um, was intended to do in the mass privatisation of the Soviet Union. The only thing is the entire Soviet Union was um, was nationalised, right? Right, right so from the very beginning. Shock. I mean, yes, in so that it's a sense, much it's... bigger shock. But if you take, you know, the the northeast of England, the Midlands, you know, all the places where the heavy industry used to be, Dagenham, you know, kind of the, yeah. you know, Ford might have been a bit different because the car, but, but there was also British Leland, you know, uh, and there was also some state intervention in the you know the auto manufacturing in the um, the UK as well yes. to prop it up to help rebuild you have this problem where you're doing the same thing 
And so it is being done to you because you're being suddenly told, no, 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 you all have to be now be, you have to moving really from what is a, a centrally, not really quite centrally, but elements of it, but a state-owned system to a totally private-owned system. And you're going to have to adapt you know, to, to something very different. There'll be different qualifications that will be needed, you know, as a process of modernization, much less labor needed than before. And then there is a correlate in the United States that people probably don't think about, but I spotted it as soon as I got there, the huge, big manufacturing, the privately owned in the United States, steel um, shipyards again as well, you know, to some degree, but in the, the steel industry and the auto manufacturing industry, especially as it developed after, you know, World War Two, when it's kind of mass manufacturing, again, under private owners, they also have elements of, you know, kind of that sort of state ownership. And let me just explain why, because everything that the worker has from healthcare, you know, to all of the other opportunities, education, even, you know, for the kids is all tied to the big enterprise, the big manufacturing uh, entity, because they dominate the towns and the cities. Yes. And so, and healthcare is a really important element of this. And any pension and all your benefits, they're tied all into this workplace. And, you know, we know why in the United States that has developed. But people get tethered to their enterprises, just like they did in the Soviet Union, which is a kind of a weird thing to think about because in the Soviet yes. Union, everything evolves around the big factories. So the factory in the United has its Kingdom, own health It has its own clinic, health. Clinic, but the big yeah. difference in the UK is that the government created the National Health Service separate from the workplace. And so, so it weirdly, meant you didn't have all your eggs in the no, same basket. You didn't have all your eggs in the yeah. same basket. But in yeah. the US, you actually did. And I noticed that right away. And I think that's weird. Why is that? You know, and then I start kind of, you know, thinking about it, particularly as my parents are in the healthcare sector by this time. My dad's gone from heavy industry into the care economy. And so, you know, I happen to just buy, you know, process of just personal experience and know quite a lot about these things. So I start paying attention. And all my work in Russia is looking at the post Soviet, post industrial Russia. And how the changes in the economic side, because I start working with our colleague at Brookings, Clifford Gaddy, who's now yeah. retired, and whose whole work is on the defense industrial economy. So I just start working with the economists because I understand right away that the economic changes are having political outcomes. Right. And then it finds its ultimate expression in the rise of, of, of populism in the way that you describe exactly. in these different ways and in these different places, which relies on this, they're doing this to us. That's right. And like it's the elite, you know, the versus elite. the people. Correct. And that's the thing that's always true. That's always there. Like, yeah. And exactly. now the elite comes versus is different and so on. And obviously you go into some you know, great detail about your own experience um, working with Trump. And most of that I think you've, you've covered very well kind of in the book and, and elsewhere. There's a couple of things that um, really interest me about it is your comparison. Because obviously you're a, one of the reasons you came in to, to the White House again was because of your expertise on Putin in particular. And I found your comparison of Trump and Putin really interesting. And what I found most interesting about it wasn't so much the similarities, which I think um, people can see uh, to some extent. We've talked a little bit about the the populist wave they rode and the direct communication. It was more the differences. And two things really stuck out to me was their attitude towards the state and what that therefore meant for their ability to wield power and the extent to which they see themselves as unifiers or dividers. And I thought right. those two differences yep. were really interesting. I'd love to hear you talk a bit about those two observations. Well, I mean, those are really rooted in, you know, the, some real distinct differences between the United States and Russia. And, you know, in the book, I'm, you know, I, I hope I'm not making, you know, some substantive equivalency because, I mean, these are very different countries. I mean, just like with the UK as well. Right. But it, it's, I, I think, 
you know, I've, I've become a comparativist over time just because I've moved around so much and I've you know, um, started working on so many different uh, topics. And I do think that, you know, comparisons are useful for the differences, just as you're saying, as, as much as they are for the similarities. And, and as you uh, rightly pointed out, there's two really telling differences. So first of all, Putin rose up to power in Russia through the back corridors of the state. He joins the KGB and that's his ladder to social mobility, not the Communist Party. And interestingly, he's still not a member of a party, mm. uh, but it's kind of, it's the institutional pathway, the hierarchy, the training. And of course, that gives him a very special view on the world, which is pretty dark and full of nasty tricks and ruthlessness and, you know, no holds barred because he's a KGB operative who did all kinds of, you know, nasty things early on in his career. But he also sees himself as a defender of the state. Because the yeah. KGB, he, you know, their image he is, is that Mr. Deep State. He's Mr. He's Deep Mr. State. Deep, he sense, is he? the ultimate yeah. Mr. Deep State. And yeah. they see themselves, you know, as the sword and the shield of the state, the defenders of the state. So Putin is never going to rail against the state because he is the state, as you said. He's Mr. Deep State. And he's always going to rule through the state. And Putin hasn't dismantled the state. He kind of rules in parallel. He uses the state apparatus. 60% of the Russian, you know, kind of working population are one way or another hired by the state. The state is, you know, kind of for him, the be all and the end all. And mm -hmm. he has, you know, as I said, these parallel, you know, groups, but they intersect with the state. He hasn't, he, do, he doesn't try to kind of kick everybody out. He, you know, he basically, you know, tries to use the state wherever he can. The other thing is it gets this issue of division or unity. Putin's a historian, a self-taught historian. He um, likes to think of himself as a continuation of, you know, everything going back to the czars all the way through the, you know, the key Soviet leaders. He's Vladimir the Great. I mean, he, he makes no pretense about this. And, uh, you know, when you go into the Kremlin, into all these meeting rooms with him, I've been in this a couple of times. It's this white, you know, kind of uh, meeting room. And he's got statues of, you know, the kind of the great... Uh, imperial rulers of the past, one of which is Catherine the Great. So, you know, he's got a sort of gender diversity there because it's, um, you know, what's Catherine the Great? I mean, she's the German princess who comes, you know, essentially takes over and a bit Vladimir Putin-esque <laughs> through the kind of strange corridors of, you know, kind of uh, the palaces at the time, you know, unexpectedly becomes the empress. A bit of skullduggery, you know, kind of going on there. And she, you know, puts Russia on the map. And, you know, she has these incredible conversations through letters with Voltaire and, you know, lots of people, you know, everybody knows who she is. She gathers Russian land. She annexes Crimea, you know, which is something that Putin has redone again in 2014. Yes. Yeah. And she's known as a reformer. And there's all these things, but she also you know, indulged in a bit of repression. But, um, you know, he's styling himself like one of the old imperial leaders. He sees himself as a continuity of leadership in uh, Russia as well. And in each case, what has brought down the state in the past? Because we talked about the collapse of the Soviet Union a little earlier, and of course it was the collapse of the Russian Empire. I mean, this is a state that's undergone two massive wrenching dislocations in the 20th century. 1917 revolution, bye-bye Russian Empire. You know, 1991, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the erosion of the um, Eastern Bloc, the collapse of uh, the Soviet Union, pulled apart by all these different forces. And Putin says, you know, that kind of the great tra tragedy of the 20th century is the collapse of the states. And it all comes about by disunity. 
because mm. everybody's fighting with each other. It's not just the economic collapse of uh, you know the Soviet central planning, the whole system, the exhaustion of it in the uh, 1980s and 1990s, but it's because of the rise of nationalism, including Russian nationalism. This is a multinational state. Ukrainians, Belarusians, Armenians, Georgians, Azeris, that also helped to bring down the Russian Empire. Religious differences, political differences, everybody's fighting with each other. A bit like here in the United mm. States right now. We, we look a lot like Russia of the 1900s and the 1990s, the kind of the bookends of Russian history in the 20th century where everyone, every single group uh, has lost their central identity with the state. Yeah. And so Vladimir Putin wants to be a unifier. Yeah, he'll go after Alexei Navalny and other opposition figures who are challenging him. And he'll go by after LGBTQ uh, Russians or anybody he thinks who doesn't really have a kind of a mass base of following. He can kind of pick them off, you know, to kind of show to the others what nasty things could happen to you if you're kind of on the wrong side of his history. Uh, but, you know, he would never try to pit people against each other in any major way, particularly any major societal groupings. He wants to have the maximal support that he possibly can. He uses the Orthodox Church for that, but he never baits anybody on the basis of, because there are other indigenous religions, Judaism, uh, Islam. Islam is actually older than Russian Orthodoxy in Russian territory, and also Buddhism and also shamanism, but he goes after the shamans because he kind of figures that... um, there's not too many of them around and they don't have a big base of support. But he would never pit religious groups against each other. And he's super careful on ethnic groups inside of Russia too because Russia gave us the word pogrom. And he doesn't so want to reignite a He pogrom. doesn't want to reignite that because they get out of hand. In each of the cases of the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Russian Empire, there was a lot of inter-ethnic or inter-religious and inter-political strife. Not less religious in the, the Soviet case, but certainly ethnic and political um, as well. So, very different from Trump, yeah. Yeah, who sees his he's the divider, and he doesn't want to see the state. He wants to rule despite the state, and he, you know, is essentially he hijacked the Republican Party, but he has no interest in the state. Right, and therefore no interest in public policy, particularly, which is one no. of your, which is your observation of being close to him. And I don't wonder if it's partly because. Because of the way you describe Putin as having this view of Russia and of history, sort of in a global sense, uh, whereas I think Trump's very, par- par- I'm thinking out loud, but more parochial now. It's a, very parochial. He's talking about making America great again. It's a, he's not really thinking about an American empire or America on the in the world mm-hmm. stage. And he's very much thinking about like within America. And so then it were if if really you're just interested in domestic power or whatever he's interested in, then you drive the fissures. But rather than try and heal them. But it also means that, I mean, my reading of your book, I'm sure is that just what made Trump a terribly un- ineffective autocrat is because you, it's really difficult to be an autocrat without the state. I mean, to get, you talk about Erdogan and people like that as well. I mean, they, they know how to use state power in a way that Trump, for the reasons you've identified, doesn't. And it seems to me like the state held against Trump and the judiciary yep. held, most, you know, the government held, even January 6th, even Pence, you know, in the end it held. And because he had no idea where the levels of power were and right. didn't have any interest in playing him anyway, he just sort of bumbled around for like, I'm not saying he didn't do any harm, don't get me wrong, but by and large, he just, he didn't exercise power because he didn't know how to and he didn't want to. And the state basically just kind of contained him for four years and 
uh, and God forbid that we'll test the fences again. But is that fair characterization? Do you think, or am I being too optimistic there about how it held? Or because you know, they took over, like Erdogan and Putin, they take the state, right? They they use right. the state. Trump Trump was sort of constrained by the state broadly described. Yeah, I mean Erdogan is actually a, a similar, you know, um, out from the state character. I mean, you know, he rails against the deep state because it's a Turkish mm. term, the deep state. But Erdogan did have this pathway to power, though, by being the mayor of Istanbul. Yeah. So he comes from a very hard scrabble background, um, you know. But and uh, but he was the mayor of Istanbul, yeah. so he figured wasn't, out wasn't how Putin it all worked. Mayor as well, was Putin mayor? Putin was the deputy mayor of deputy uh, mayor. Saint okay. Petersburg. Okay. But again, but they both I mean, got his, this sort of... yeah, they both got this kind of upward path through kind of state mm. structures. Uh, Erdogan certainly has a chip on his shoulder about the state because you know he gets uh, prosecuted for um, a religious poem, uh, you know, during the whole period of, you know, really stark secularization. He wants his revenge, but he wants to kind of basically model the state in his own image. He wants to uh, de-secularize the state. And, you know, basically, because he's very observant, you know, religious, um, although he plays like Putin with this observancy, because Putin, you know, also claims to be observant Russian Orthodox. And, I, you know, I think both Putin and Erdogan see the power of religion that can be used. Now, Trump flirts a little bit with this, but nobody really takes him seriously as being a particularly religiously observant uh, person. Yeah. And Trump sort of flirts with a lot of the things that they do. But as you're absolutely right, he doesn't know how to use the levers of the state. He wants to dismantle it. And he kind of, you know, jumps on the bandwagon that's uh, scoped out by Steve Bannon, you know, who was an early, you know, and remains an advisor to him. And Steve Bannon has openly called himself Lenin, you know, picking up on, mm. you know, the Russian image again. And, and you know, basically wanting to uh, usurp the state and then dismantle it. Because, of course, you know, Lenin, that's his idea when he first comes in as the leader of the Bolsheviks um, to dismantle the, the czarist state and create something else. And then they kind of realize as they go along this, oh, oh, hang on, this isn't working. Immediate all kinds of disasters. You know, they tried to start to dismantle the state and or mess about with it. Then all the, you know, the, uh, the czarist officials leave and they suddenly realize they can't run the country. So yeah. they have to kind of try to kind of bring it back again and they create, you know, all of these, um, you know, basically committees, these emergency committees that end up being repressive mechanisms because they have to kind of force people back into work to do things. So, you know, we're kind of on the bit of a verge of that kind of thing in the United States because Trump didn't see the point of the state. He doesn't right. see the kind of the point of the institution, he doesn't know how any of them work. Michael Lewis's book, The Fifth Risk, you know, lays that out very clearly when he does interviews with people in that transition period that, you know, the, the some of the people coming in with Trump, the political appointees from his campaign, not the detailees or the appointees from, you know, the Republican um, conventional apparatus and people who've served in previous administrations, but others were just like, why do we need this? I don't know what this does. You know, so it's almost like kind of the privatization of government and, you know, kind of, uh, but not working in parallel with the state. Can't we just run everything from, you know, the the desk here in the in the Oval Office as if this yes. is kind of the air traffic control center or something, which is, you know, the the idea of, uh, of Trump running his own family business. He doesn't see why the country can't run in the same way. And you and you describe how he essentially runs his White House that way. And so I think this is a, think about the future now and how, how optimistic or pessimistic you are looking forward. Because I think if we say a dangerous version of Trump, and I think you say this, is someone who understands power and understands 
first of all, you've got to see, you have to seize the state even before you think about dismantling it. And, you, and it's really hard to create crony capitalism without really understanding statecraft. Um, I mean, and Trump just couldn't do any of that. And most of the, and half, most people he brought in couldn't do it. Anyone who could didn't last very long. Uh, in terms of domestic policy, especially, I mean, it's a miracle you survived. And, you know, your resilience shows through, <laughs> maybe because of Bishop Auckland was good training for the White House. I think but- it was, honestly, yeah. I, I'm not a very ideological, I'm not an ideological person at all. I mean, I, you know, I kind of went in there to do a job, which was, you know, figure out how to deal with the Russians. But I came out thinking, uh, you know, expletives, you know, we are really in big trouble here. Everything that I'd seen in the Russian context and, and then some in other places as well, I was seeing here. And yeah. it's that kind of shock of realisation that we're not exceptional. We are not, you know, kind of somehow inured to or immune, you know, to all of the same problems that you see in other places. We need to do something. <laughs> so we had the in- so would it be fair to say that Trump had a lot of those instincts and operating styles and so on but he didn't yeah he didn't have the institutions for the reasons we just talked about partly whereas the institution so what's your what's your worst fear about how the next because obviously the 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 moment hasn't passed i mean it it didn't Uh, we're still in it right we're still i mean in some ways it feels worse rather than better post trump and What's what, what do you think is the kind of bleakest picture that you can see for the next 10 years uh, in the US context, given your comparative studies? And what's the what's the most positive uh, outcome? So like if you if you were well, like, to direct. Yeah, well, I kind of feel and I, in many respects, I've, I've you know, so, so that we've, we're sort of in that sort of 1990s period in Russia, you know, under Yeltsin. You know, Yeltsin's instincts were much more democratic and pluralistic. I mean, he, he knew that, um, you know, and he had lots of technocrats around him. He knew they had to reform the system. And they had to reform it fast. That was the whole idea of shock therapy. So in a way now, Biden becomes kind of mm. like the, the technocrats around, you know, Yeltsin who know they've got to pull something out really quick on infrastructure and spending bills. And, you know, they've got to show people that they mean business and they can they can turn this around. And then, you know, they, they can't. There's many periods in the 1990s under Yeltsin that the reformers burst forward. And they, you know, they, they put come out with new reform plans and they just fail because they haven't got the... They haven't got the wherewithal for collective action, and the and the and the task is so large, and people have become really impatient. But the difference here is that Yeltsin makes this fateful choice of Vladimir Putin as his successor, and he does that not because he thinks that you know Vladimir Putin's this kind of incredibly competent, um, you know, kind of guy who's going to turn the country around, but he wants protection at that point because he's so unpopular and. Um, People around him have availed themselves, let's just say, of some of the assets of the state. The kind of crony capitalism is already in the kind of a lot of the chaos, really taken hold, absence of the rule of law, you know, you name it. And he doesn't want to be prosecuted or persecuted for any of the things that he's done. Mm. And so he wants to choose his successor. And it's the success of Vladimir Putin that then avails himself of all of these constitutional and other kind of changes that Yeltsin's presided over to really... Uh, consolidate and build and grow his power and to then sort of take over the state. And he's not at all like everybody expects. He's not somebody who they can just, you know, manipulate and, you know, push into a, uh, certain positions and, you know, push their agendas forward. He's somebody who actually is his own guy and he kind of seizes control of the Kremlin. Now, I worry about somebody doing that around Trump. You know, they so may have other policies... The- the next Trump, so the post-Trump person is like a... I mean, yeah, all, even, like with, a even with, tr- even with right, Trump right. himself, you know, kind of coming back in, that people around have seen the potential now 
you know, for, you know, really taking control and consolidating, you know, their own power and their own agendas. So and, in that case, you know, it, 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 and Trump himself then also coming back in 2024 and really wanting vengeance on the state to kind of, you know, basically more like Erdogan shape the state in his own image. So, I mean, I, I, have a, I haven't talked about Erdogan or anything like this in the book, but I've, you know, Turkey's been in my portfolio for years. I've, I've done a lot of work at Brookings on Turkey. Yeah. And I've, I've uh, seen, you know, up close what's happened there too. I've spent a lot of time in Turkey and it was in my portfolio in the National Security Council. I worry about that. Because um, in all of these states, any opposition to this, and again, not on an ideological basis, but people who see what's happening, they cannot get themselves together. Because they have too many differences. I mean, we're seeing that now in our political um, system here in the United States. Yes. In the Republican Party, there's a lot of people opposed to this. There's a lot of, you know, Republicans who don't want to be the party of Trump and, and the Congress, but they don't know what to do. Probably, you know, I mean, the they, majority, yeah. the clear, the clear majority, but it's like they couldn't organise themselves to stop him and probably won't yeah, be able because to. because Trump is playing to a base. It's not 74 million people. I doubt really that all 74 million people, you know, voted for this because, I mean, half the time they don't really know, but but Trump is a very charismatic politician. He kind of eclipses everybody else in his ability to engage. Erdogan's very good at engaging too. So is Putin. He's worked at it a lot. I wouldn't have said he was the most engaging person you've ever met at the very beginning. But he's done all kinds of things from, you know, these ridiculous guises that he gets up into. I talked about this in a book that Cliff Gaddy and I wrote. He's a bit like one of the childhood characters, uh, the characters from childhood cartoons that you and I watched, Mr. Ben, yeah. you know, a guy in a suit who goes into a magical costume store and comes out in all these different costumes and does these amazing, you know, things. And that's what Putin does. He's ice hockey. He's, you know, he's the ultimate spy. He's a firefighter. He's a fighter pilot. He's this, he's that, the other. He's done all of that to be the political performer to engage people. So he's transformed himself from faceless uh, KGB guy into something for everybody. Erdogan's, you know, kind of done that, you know, by appealing to, you know, more devout Muslims, but also to others who thought initially he was going to be a reformer, that he was going to kind of, you know, bring, uh, get get rid of corruption uh, from, you know, the previous um, Turkish regime that had totally lost the plot. That yeah. He might bring people together. A lot of people have jumped onto this. And I think people should not underestimate, you know, Donald Trump's abilities as a retail politician. He knows how to connect with people. He knows how to get people riled up. And like Erdogan does, he goes out there in these rallies and he knows how to pit people against each other so that they can't push back against what he's doing. And if, I mean, I think Erdogan in some ways is a, is a great comparison. I mean, you think I actually had Mustafa Akyol on my podcast earlier. Who's, right have written a lot about this and we've written a piece together about what Erdogan did with the Hagia Sophia which was brilliant to turn it back into a mosque um in terms of what signal that that sent to to his base and so I do think there's and and of course he's gradually taking control of the judiciary and so on too and so that's right so in some ways the model the model of a more of a smarter and somewhat more uh incremental autocrat is one that kind of Trump could follow if he had someone of Bannon's skill, maybe, and ruthlessness kind of alongside him and various yeah, other and look, people. And others who want right? to be the heir apparent, right? I mean, they'll look and say, well, look, you know, he's not going to live forever, um, although you know, he might well. You know, look at Putin. I mean, he, he could be in power there for 36 years. So, you know, people who wanted to maybe replace him have got a long you know, bit of waiting. But Trump's made it clear that if it's not him... Um, it's only somebody of his choosing, someone that he anoints. So there's a lot of people competing to be that, who again, you know, may be able to avail themselves of the power that you know uh, Trump has um, essentially shown is possible to accrue, because the U.S. presidency 
has become more about the president, the executive rather than the executive branch. And a lot of fail-safes in the system, the guardrails, have been bumped into, damaged or removed. Yeah. And, you know, that's some of the uh, – and participation in voting is starting to get rolled back as well. And we saw that in Russia. We've seen that in Turkey. And, you know, we can see that in other settings as well. When you make it very difficult for others to mobilize against this – um, in Turkey, it's minority rule as well. I mean, there, there, there is more opposition to Erdogan than there is uh, support for Erdogan. And same with Putin. But it's really hard to organise, um, you know, to get the kind of opposition because everyone's, everyone's fractured. Everyone's divided, yeah. And divided, yeah. If, yeah. if they're, if you're in the middle, I think that's right. So the fear is, so who does, who scares you the most? If it's not, so if it's not Trump, like who do you do you see people in the US? I mean, obviously, well, I see an awful lot of people but... who were quite happy to, um, you know, basically buy into the big lie that the election was stolen in 2020. Plenty of people have got their own agendas and they're very happy to pursue them at the expense of everybody else. Even if you know they're probably telling themselves they're doing this for the sake of the country and many of these policies are great and there'd be you know my majority support in them, they're all about personal power. Yes, you're right. it's, it's, about, it's about them and it's not about, you know, this kind of larger sense of public service. I mean, yeah, I could name a lot of names. And I think yeah, And it's, look, it's, it can be on both sides of the aisle too here. I mean, I'd like to kind of remind people that one, you put tools in place and you think, oh, it's all right if my side have it. Well, what if your side doesn't? And a lot of this is in reaction to perceptions about what they think, you know, different groups are doing to them. It's that polarization, that idea of sides. Yes. It's a big problem. And That's, if they've that done in it, itself is a huge problem. If they've no, I compl- I think we completely agree about that. And that's that's what Biden said. Look, we need to lower the temperature. We need to look each we other in the eye. Yeah. I've done quite a bit of work on this whole idea of respect. I think that the loss that's of right. respect across political difference and other kinds of differences exactly. possibly the most dangerous thing of all. But the last thing I guess is like you've talked a bit about the incrementalism in you know what right as we speak, the Dems desperately trying to get something done. You talk about a Marshall Plan for Middle America. You talk about socialized healthcare. You talk. About, so I'm not going to pin you to any of these particular policy issues because I I read it as you saying, "Look, there are real problems here being faced right, by lots right. of people, and unless there are big, muscular, proper responses from right-minded people, then populism." And uh, is the price you're paying. So, yeah. But it doesn't look right now, as we sit here, as if our political system, even when you've got some control from, like, the, I'm not making a partisan point, just right minded people. Yeah, right? no, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Just, what are we going to get? Are yeah. we going to get, are we going to get enough? And does that, yeah. if, we, if, it's, if it's breadcrumbs, yeah. Is that going to do enough? Is that? I mean, that's almost my bigger fear in a way. No, it's, it's my look. It's my fear too, Richard. And I think you know we're both in the same place because I mean, look, we're Americans by choice. You know, as I put it when I had to testify, um, you know, we 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 invested in this country. We put everything here. I mean, yes, this was a place of opportunity for us. Our families are here. You know, flipping the title of the book, there is something for me here, and I want to stay here. <laughs> You know, I, I think and I think that's the case, you know, for every uh, everybody I know, honestly. Um, but right now we've got this gridlock at the top. I mean, we're proving to be ungovernable because people cannot step away from just their private personal viewpoints. And, you know, kind of it's not just reaching out across the aisle, just reaching out to people outside, you know, the political sphere as they would to their neighbours in the neighbourhood and their family members. You know, we saw this in the UK, and I do talk about, you know, the UK quite a bit in the book as another you know, form of cautionary tale. We saw this with Brexit. People yeah. divided themselves between Brexiteers and Remainers. 
I mean, now that, you know, Brexit is over, so to speak, it's hardly over, <laughs> it's only beginning, yeah. um, you know, that, but that time kind of animosity has faded a bit. But the idea that people are dividing themselves off in, in, into red and blue Americans, you know, leaving the rest of us who don't see ourselves that way into some kind of strange limbo is a massive problem. So one of the things I, you know, talk about in the book you know, okay, there's lots of ideas out there. The Marshall Plan, you know, has been, uh, ideas been put forward by many people. It's not necessarily, sure. you know, my idea. I mean, you know, there were mayors from, you know, the Midwest who mm-hmm. wrote a, uh, tell that story a, a, well. a letter to the Washington Post asking for something like this. People are saying, come on, we've got to, you know, basically have, as you think, some meta level, you know, muscular approach to development here. This is a development as well as a, as a political problem. But, you know, if we can't get past the gridlock, then what? So I talk in the book about, okay, we can start to have some demonstration effect here as individuals with collective action. So actually in the book, I end up with a kind of a weird thing, I suppose, with this kind of book, which is, uh, what can you do to create opportunities? Yes, if you're a CEO, if, kind of levels, if you're yeah. a college student, as a to-do and list. Could, yeah, yeah, and we could, we could, we yeah. could you know, join those things up as demonstration in which to say, come on. You know, we can do things, public-private um, activity. I mean, I'm also trying to put a challenge to, you know, you, me, and our other colleagues at Brookings. We've got some great ideas there. Well, let's try to figure out how we could actually put some of these into action. Be, you know, not that I'm saying that, you know, the whole of Brookings should then start, you know, kind of putting, like, you know, public works projects. But why can't we kind of team up, you know, with, with groups and networks to try to help, you know, move some of this along? A lot can be done at the state and local level. Despite the nationalisation of politics, you know, we both live in Maryland, where we have a Republican governor, and we have uh, you know, Democratic senators, we have, you know, people who are pretty well respected. My local congressman is Jamie Raskin, who's, you know, mm. right out there in the forefront of trying to protect democracy right now. We could show at maybe a state or a local community level, things where people can get things done. So how do we amplify that? And that's kind of the challenge to myself in writing this book. I'm like, okay, I saw how that worked at the community level back in the UK. There are still communities there. That was why I really am hard on Margaret Thatcher, because she said that the United Kingdom was a society where there were only individuals, not communities. The only way that things get done, and that's my life story, is through communities, you know, people supporting each other. And you talk every about si- that. Yeah, every single girl, thing that happened died, to me was somebody helping me. Uncles. Right? Was it was a team effort. Miners' associations. And also, I do and so think... How do, we scale, how do we scale that up is the kind of question. And I think we can right. do that. Instead of just waiting for the guys to do it from the top, yes, we need those infusions of cash, but maybe we can find ways of doing it. Look at Alaska. You know, Alaska yeah. has, they're on the basis of their assets from the oil and gas sector, they gave everybody basically um, a, a community payment. Uh, you know, but Alaska, you know, has, has developed ways of investing its assets. You know, what have we got around? There's um, a guy called Mark Blythe at um, Brown University who wrote, you know, with another colleague, this book called Angrynomics. And they have all kinds of ideas in there about how you could kind of create local assets, you know, to sort of invest into projects that could take communities and other things forward. There's loads of ideas like that. In, in I agree. I, of, um, I, I, I think yeah. that's right. I think what I like about this is that you don't end necessarily with, just a sort of list of public policy ideas that someone else has to go and implement. Although that's there, it's there's this guy Jerry Cohen who wrote this book oh, yeah. um, with a wonderful title. If you're an egalitarian, how come you're so rich? And he's this great right. line in there where he says, "Social justice isn't just found in structures and institutions; it's found in the thick of everyday life." And I exactly use that right. phrase a lot yeah. in the thick of everyday life because it's all too easy to say, like, "Well, that's got to be solved by." 
No, I'll put the right sign in my yard and then I'll vote for the right people and wait for socialised healthcare to come along. But in the meantime, I'm going to carry on with my own life. Right? Yeah, I'm not going to do anything. Yeah, I'm not going to do anything because this has to be so. And I think you you say somewhere, I think this is where the macro and the micro, right? You need the micro yeah. for the macro. And I think they're absolutely connected because right. the micro creates the culture and culture precedes politics, which precedes policy. That's as right. policy wants, we tend to start at the policy end, right? But, right. but, but. And we're all waiting for some guy that we want in the White House. That was a guy, you know, kind of to do everything. Well, they can't do everything. How can they possibly? No. And they can't do everything unless our culture is accommodating exactly. of the sorts of things they're trying yeah. to do. And we create the culture in our own institutions, in our own, in our, you know, exactly we right. have to stand in our own shoes, whether it's Brookings or the White House or your local right. scout group or your church or your high school or whatever. And so I, I love the to-do list at the end because I think that it's very easy, particularly with some of your background and your expertise and your you know, stellar career, if I can say that, to sort of, sort of be very macro and this is what has to happen. And, and you do have that, but you also have a, look, what can you do? right now in your community and in your institution and i and i i don't think that's instead of macro i actually think it's a prerequisite for macro and i yeah, i don't think yeah. we're there yet but hopefully we're well we look we could be because i mean look i just see even in my community um you know people doing amazing things i mean there's all these great community organizations that are just helping people keep it together but then they're also hoping to kind of you know build them up again it's all the community activities that give people a hand up not a handout, but a hand up, you know, get, getting them to housing, you know, for example, people who've been homeless, because I think about that a lot with after my, you know, my dad's experience, you know, from birth to seven, being homeless. Yeah. And, you know, what it took to then have a home and then not having any furniture. And, you know, our house, you know, when my parents bought it, we didn't have the electricity on half the time. You know, we didn't have any appliances in there. You know, right. we we had the house and, you know, that was kind of was a bit of a shell. And we, yeah. we furnished it often with things that people gave us. And, you know, for example, I, I always, whenever I can, I take things to a wider circle, which is this mm. great group. Um, yes, yeah, same. Give them a plug. Yeah. And, um, yeah, you know, I kind of just thinking because people are getting, you know, kind of a leg up to getting a house after being homeless to get themselves, you know, also with your work clothes, you know, um, a wider circle will help people, yeah. um, you know, kind of get themselves, you know, there's another organization dressed for success. Yeah. So, I mean, the, during COVID, we've all been on Zoom. It doesn't really matter, you know, so much about what we're well, wearing. So but bottom, when we get out, the bottom half, the bottom half, the top half, anyway. the top <laughs> half yeah, I mean, we've got shirts and blouses and things like that right now. But, you know, it's all these practical things. And I realize, you know, I, I know for a fact that that's kind of what helped me all the way along. My godparents, you know, next door, the Welsh uh, couple, John and Bessie Williams, John had gone to grammar school. He'd kind of broken the, the ceiling that my dad didn't have. And he'd gone from the slate mines um, of Snowdonia, um, you know, to kind of into a management job. And, you know, kind of uh, um, he then was working one of the local technical colleges. And they were, you know, a couple of, you know, rungs up the pay salary from us they would always you know kind of give us their we didn't think of it as cast-offs but you know the the first television we got was you know kind of from them that <laughs> we owned you know and, and they would sort of help us out and you know people in our neighborhood come and help my dad build things you know and fix the house because they knew that we couldn't afford it and you know as people would just sort of pitch in and people do that you know kind of in my neighborhood here i live in an old established neighborhood and you know neighbors pitch in we we definitely can do this. It's just we're not pitching in as a society overall. We're probably not going to get that fixed at the top. But maybe, you know, kind of some of the rest of us in a high profile positions can show people we can do this. Yeah. You know, I mean, one of the things that I want to do from the book is I want to use the money from the book to help, you know, fund some things as well. 
I'm not doing yes. it. I didn't write this book so I would you know, make money. I mean, it's a challenge to me. And it's a sort of like, what can I do with this? Or what can we all do with it? Because people have helped me all the way along. I mean, I just, love- you know, and I mean, that's, I've got to pay it back and pay it forward, right? Yeah, I love the way you end with this because it gives us this wonderful scope which is to remind people that the, the book is called there's nothing for you here finding opportunity in the 21st century please go and go and buy it but i there's this kind of phrase from the environmental movement which is think global act local yeah. and you're the personification of that right now because of your sort of geopolitical background and seeing this sweep of kind of decades worth of history and political economy and then ending by reminding everybody that what they do with their furniture and their clothes and their time and their political capital and their networks is right. ultimately what creates a society. Like, so back to yeah. your point about Thatcher. Like, That's right. And societies That's don't... why I'm hard on her, because she was brilliant. And, you know, she broke the glass ceiling. She was clearly yeah. incredibly accomplished. She had a vision for Britain, but she didn't realise that it took a community. Yeah. And the Soviets really admired her for that reason, of course. I they mean, did. That's one of the reasons why she's Iron so Lady. Well. You know, she was, Iron there, was Lady. Pictures, there were pictures of her everywhere when I, I know went to Moscow. I was like, this is so weird. Do... You know, I'm riding on this like trolley bus. There's a picture of Margaret Thatcher every day staring at me. Like, she was like a oh, bit of a God. hero, heroine to the Marxist <laughs> classes. Oh, I know, it was amazing, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it was, but we have some of the same memories of, the, of that growing up. But anyway, look, I should let you go. Thanks again for your time, Fiona. Thanks for your work, for your, you know, both for uh, on the book but at uh, brookings and uh, thoroughly recommend the book to everybody and i sense that we've got a lot more to talk about but thanks for joining me today that's great Rick. thanks for listening to dialogues i hope you enjoyed that conversation and if you did please take a moment to follow like rate and share the podcast in all the usual places And send me your thoughts and ideas, including for future guests, to dialoguespod at gmail.com. That's dialoguespod at gmail.com. I'll see you next time.